right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 100, it's, it's just a simple little song. Nothing too fancy. And I'll just go ahead and read the whole thing, and then we'll come back and pick some things out. Psalm 100 says this, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness, and come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. <clears throat> and the part of this that brought back my own experience was just the second verse. Worship the Lord with gladness. How do you worship him? With gladness. And John Piper's book, what he does in there that was such a revolutionary thing for, for my own walk and my own way of seeing reality is he takes the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Catechism, uh, and he changes something. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith was a product of the English Civil Wars. So 1643 to 1649, you've got the Parliament, which is now in control and they're having a civil war with Charles I. Charles I was more on the Catholic side. The Parliament was more on the Puritan side. Uh, and they're having this battle kind of going back and forth. Now, the, Charles I, his forces were called the Royalists, um, believed in the monarchy, believed uh, in the divine right of kings and that kind of thing. So you've got this civil war going on. And basically, the Parliament realized they couldn't stand on their own two feet. They needed help in terms of military. And so they looked to Scotland, and they, they said, we would like to, to enter into league with you, um, some kind of a contract so that you guys can help us out uh, and win these civil wars. Now, Scotland was very reformed at the time, and they said, if we're going to do that, you guys have to have a vision for reforming the Church of England, for how to change that, adapt that, bring that back into a, a biblical type of a picture. And so what, ha what came about from that was just this, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so it was over a couple of years, um, they met at Westminster Abbey, uh, called the Divines, and you know, a group of several hundred men. And they worked on this Confession of Faith, which was ratified by England, ratified by Scotland. And of course, when Charles I got back into power, you know, it got nullified on that end. Uh, but it stayed as part of Scotland's kind of... Um, basically the, the foundation of their church and their faith, etc. So what ends up happening is it's a document that the Puritans bring with them, that the Presbyterians hold uh, very sacred, and so it comes to America that way. So there's a whole broad range of denominations and Protestants that have had kind of this Westminster Confession of Faith as a hallowed document, not, not as scripture, but as a way of defining doctrine. Now, when you've got this confession of faith, what they were charged to do also was then to put it in the form of a catechism. Now, a catechism, if you're a Baptist, you, you haven't, uh, you, you didn't go through, you know, a catechism or anything like that. But for many hundreds of years, all the way back in the early church, there was a process of catechizing someone, which was 
growing them up in doctrine, teaching them the theology, what the scriptures say, okay? And so they took this confession of faith and they wanted to put it into a catechism, which is a simple way of, of catechizing someone, question and, and answers, ways for them to memorize things, uh, true things about the faith. And that catechism got broke into a larger one and a smaller one. So if you've ever seen the, the Westminster Catechism of Faith larger, or you've ever seen the Westminster Catechism of, of Faith shorter version, basically the shorter version is, is like uh, catechism for dummies. It's just, it's for dummies, okay? Uh, but it's the same things, it's just packaged in, in kind of an easier way. Now, again, those are question and answer so that, that young children growing up or new converts can begin to easily remember doctrine. And it begins with this question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to that is to worship God and enjoy him forever. Second question, and this just shows you where these men are coming from, is, you know, where do we go uh, to know how to worship God and enjoy him forever? And it's the scriptures have been given to us for that purpose. So this is the source book. Um, so you can see they're, where they're kind of grounding things. But that first question, what is our purpose in life? What is our, what is our reason for being? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, what John Piper did in his book, Desiring God, was he changed that. And it's okay to change uh, the Westminster Catechism. It's not okay to change Scripture. Um, but what he took issue with was the word and. And he said this is kind of confusing because that conjunction just means you kind of begin to add things. I'm supposed to worship God, and I'm supposed to enjoy him. And we could keep right on going, and I'm supposed to obey him, and I'm supposed to do that. And pretty soon you wipe the sweat off your brow and you say, wow, that's a lot of weight. It's a lot of things to hang on to. And what John Piper does is, is he changes the word and, and he says this, the chief end of man is to glorify, our, is to worship God by enjoying him. To worship God by enjoying him. So if you come back to verse 2 here in this psalm, worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Down in verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. And what Piper really tried to do was say, you can't disconnect your heart from the worship of God. You can't tell someone, just do something uh, because it's duty, like homework. Do your homework. I don't really want to. So I'm not going to do it. Or if I do it, I'm going to do it grudgingly. You can't tell someone, just worship God as if it's homework. Because even if we do it, it's going to be without our heart, without our passions. And is that going to really please God? It's not, it's not going to really please God. I saw a movie recently where a couple was arguing in the the woman was mad at the guy because he wasn't uh, helping with the dishes. And so he finally throws up his hands and says, okay, I'll help you with the dishes. She goes, no, I don't want you to help me with the dishes. And he says, well, do you want me to help you with the dishes or not? You just said you want to help with the dishes. She goes, no, I want you to want to help me with the dishes. And a typical guy says, well, why would I want to do dishes? You know? <laughs> and he's missing the whole point, um, that the way to honor her is, is for him to say, it brings me joy to serve you or to help you. That's what I want is to make you happy. So John Piper uses this analogy. And he says, if I 
came, uh, come to my door, and it's my anniversary, and I've got a dozen roses. And I knock on the door, uh, adjust my clothes, look nice, and my wife answers the door, and I hand her these roses, and she just lights up and just says, oh, wow, uh, why in the world did you get me these? And he says, well, uh, I'm your husband, and that's my duty. Um, <laughs> throw the roses down, you know, step on them. Um, the right answer is because it brings me joy to honor you. It brings me joy to let you know that I, I, I love you. It brings me joy to give these to you. Uh, my daughter, Sarah, we went to Munch and Music on Thursday. She's a one-year-old. She just turned, I don't know. Um, she just turned one about a week or two ago. And we're at Munch and Music, and uh, I had all three girls by myself. Um, and I'm not a good dad. I've given up on thinking I'm a good dad. So I, I play it safe always. Where's a lot of grass? Where can I sit and just manage, you know? That's all I'm trying to do is just manage. So I get a little piece of grass way away from the music, and my two oldest are playing, and Sarah's learned how to crawl. And she's crawling to all these little groups of people and kind of talking to them. And then she'd look back at me and smile. And after each little group she'd kind of go play with, she'd crawl back to me, and then she'd crawl up on me. And she's, she's just learning to pull up now. And she'd pull up on my shoulders and put her head against mine. And she only knows how to say one thing, because when she said, Dada, which she said first, uh, we, we affirmed, I affirmed her so much that she got so excited that she was doing something right that now when she talks, it's just a hundred variations of da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da, or, you know, any variation there. So she's there, and she's talking like that, and I could just exist in that moment forever. She, my daughter, uh, is enjoying me. I'm at the center. I'm the safe place. I'm the most desirable spot. She doesn't have to be there. She could have just kept crawling, right? But she wants to be there. Just like you'd say to your wife, I want to bring you flowers. It brings me joy. It's not out of duty. And, and so what we've kind of done in the church, and C.S. Lewis points this out, is we've got a morality that makes us feel guilty if we think that it brings any kind of happiness uh, to obey God or to worship God. And what Lewis points out is that kind of crept in with a man by the name of Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant was a philosopher a couple hundred years ago, and probably more than anyone in the last couple hundred years, modern philosophy has affected uh, the way we view things. You don't know that, but it's like in the foundations, and it, it seeps its way in. And what Kant said was this. Something is moral the, the more you choose to do it. So if you want to help someone across the street, it doesn't really have any moral worth because you're just doing what you want to do. Okay? Um, if you don't want to do your chores, but you do them anyways, you go against your, your natural inclinations, and you will up this, this duty, this sense of duty, and you choose, you make a decision to do something, that's got moral value. See how that works? But if you're just going to do something anyways where you want to do it, it doesn't really have this moral value attached to it. That's, so it says Kant. Now, if you believe that or if, if you go with that, that means that Jesus wasn't really a moral man. Why? Because he wanted to obey the Father. 
I've done, I've said everything you've told me to say. I've done everything you've told me to do. That's what I wanted to do. He didn't have to will it against himself uh, to go and proclaim this message. It was what his desire was. And so you end up making Jesus a man that's not moral, right? Well, we kind of have that sense in the church that, that it's got to be duty. And I got to force myself to do it. And if you see somebody skipping along, well, there's probably something wrong with them, or they're probably not really a good Christian. Because if they really got it, if they were really choosing to worship God, it would be this force of will, it would be duty. And that kind of creeps in and affects our thinking. And what Piper was saying is that robs us of the heart of worship. That we as little children, as sheep that are in God's pasture, we ought to want nothing more than to be with God, than to serve him and say, God, I'm serving you. Why? Because there's nothing that gives me more joy or more happiness. And so Piper changed the Westminster Confession, and he said this, our chief end is to worship God by enjoying him. The second thing in this psalm, if you'll go back and look at it, is how the psalmist grounds this. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God, and it is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Now, he's just going to repeat that same formula a second time. It's parallel. But he's saying, this is how you worship God, with gladness, with joy, with your affections, with thanksgiving, right? And then he grounds that in who God is. Because the Lord is God, and he made us. So he says, this is what you're to do. This is what grounds that. Now he's going to work that same pattern over again. Second, same song, second verse, right? Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Why? How is he going to ground this again? Again, in the identity of God. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues all generations. Our ability to give thanks, our ability to take joy in worshiping a good God is simply by virtue of who that God is. He is a good God. He is a Father. He is the one that made us. That's what grounds it. Now, this is the interesting thing. When I go into the bookstores nowadays and read a lot of the literature, we talk about how to um, there's a lot of whole how-tos and kind of self-help uh, Christian-type things. This is how to have a meaningful Christian life. This is how to be fulfilled and satisfied as a Christian. And we say a lot of things in these books, and we're trying to give kind of the formula, but they don't always come back to being ground in God. This is what I loved about the Reformers and the Puritans. Okay? God was at the center, period. And they began everything from that standpoint God is at the center he is holy he is high he is mighty he is lifted up and everything follows from that everything is then in turn grounded back into that we live in a very man-centered culture and so we start kind of with ourselves I want to have this wonderful Christian life that when I'm in my small group I can feel proud that you know my Christian walk is better than everyone else's so how do I get that and we begin with man we try to push a string the Puritans knew how to pull the string. Does that make sense? We pushed the string. They knew how to pull it. They knew where it started from, how to keep everything in line. And 
this whole idea of joy and thanksgiving, and I can't find the right word anymore. It used to be joy. That word used to explode for me. I don't know. Have any of you experienced that? It, it was a word that used to just explode for me when I heard it, when I thought about it. All of the meaning in my life kind of was packed into that word. Lately, it's just kind of gotten hollow for me. And words do that sometimes. They, they lose the meaning you once attached to them. So I thought of, you know, happiness. Well, there's so much baggage with that. Delight um, sounds like a cake or something to me. Um, pleasure leads you in the wrong ways. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who lived in the 1700s, a great theologian, used to talk about our affections, our emotions, you know, the religious affections, these longings, these desires, these emotions that we'd have for God. In some ways, that's abstract, but maybe it does it. And I think the psalmist tries to, to give that same sense of what's that word of lining our, our hearts and our desires up with God. What's the word for that? He uses, the psalmist uses imagery. And so in Psalm 42, 1, he says, As the deer pants for water, so my soul yearns for you, God. Now, I've never been a deer, and I've never even hunted a deer, um, but I was in college once, and uh, I remember there was, uh, for about four or five years there, there was this summer concert extravaganza thing that would go around, and it was called Lollapalooza. Um, I guess it would be like a secular version of creation, and it was an all-day music festival, and uh, a bunch of us went from college, it was in the summer, and this is the East Coast. And if you've never been to the East Coast, uh, it's one step above purgatory, maybe, in the summer. Uh, it's hot, and it's humid, and it's miserable. Um, and so we went, and you get there early in the day, and it's all-day music thing. And uh, my buddy, uh, my roommate, his name was Big John. We called him Big John because he was big. Um, he was about 6'4", about 245. He was a big guy. Uh, and he never had money, and so a uh, typical thing was, you know, John, I'll, I'll pay, you know, so I had the money for both of us, and I had it in this little wallet, and I was wearing, you wear light clothes because it's going to be so hot, and so I didn't have pockets that really held on to your wallet, right? So we got there, we ran into a bunch of friends, and, and we're, we're goofing around, and somehow, and jumping around, and rolling around, and goofing around, within like the first 20 minutes, my wallet came out, and I couldn't find it. And it was gone for the next eight hours, nine hours. And I don't think you can do this anymore, but they weren't giving away free water. They were selling it, right? And so by about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we haven't had anything to drink, um, you know, hours and hours on end. We couldn't find any free water. So they had these little misting things that they had set up somewhere. And so John and I are over in these misting things, and we're, our mouths wide open, and we're trying to mist ourselves, our throats, you know. And I've never been so thirsty in my life. I mean, it was unreal how thirsty we were. And that's, I think, the imagery that the psalmist is trying to pick out with this whole idea of our hearts have to somehow yearn for or long for God. That has to be the object that we desire. We don't go to God out of duty, because I have to. We don't go to God kind of timidly like, gee, how do you do this? God's not a porcupine. Um, we got to go to God realizing there's nothing more we want and that we can get to him. 
and it's got to take hold of us, our affections. We've got to be so oriented that way that there's nothing else that compels us on. And I find that sometimes I fall into the same trap. I think we all do. When we talk about God to people, we talk about him as if we're trying to set somebody up with a blind date. I mean, have you ever noticed that? Well, God's he's, he's a good guy, you know, and, you know, yeah, there's that old be- obedience thing, but, you know, it's okay. And, and we kind of try and set God up the way you would a blind date. And I think what the, the Puritans and the Reformers would have us do is stop talking and, and send those people to meet God as quick as you can. Because when you see God, and when you see, it, you know, when, when the guy that's being set up for the blind date realizes that it's Miss America, he doesn't need the reasons anymore, right? He doesn't need your encouragement. Uh, his own heart will do the rest and drive him on. His desire will drive him on. When we see a desirable God, we will naturally want and desire that God. Now, how does that work? And I'll just conclude with this. Um, the upshot of this whole thing is we worship God with gladness. We enter his courts with praise. You worship God by desiring God, by loving God, by enjoying God. And I think that leaves us empty because a lot of times we think, how do I go spend time with God? Ken, if you're just saying, just go get with God, you'll see how great he is, how wonderful he is, how desirable he is, and that'll kind of, affect your heart, and it'll do the rest. How do I go get with God? God's invisible. He's a spirit. God doesn't really talk back the way uh, we talk to people. How do I do that? And so I think I, I find sometimes it's hollow when we just say, go get with God, you'll see how great he is, and, and you can't get a handle on that. And I think here's part of it. When you go to my house, if you enjoy my house, if you can make yourself at home, if you like the way uh, my wife decorated it, if you, if you enjoy something about that house, I get credit for that. I had a good time with Ken and Tamara. Or I really enjoyed tonight. Does that make sense? If someone writes a praise song that, that's your favorite praise song, and you realize that that artist wrote it, you're not talking to that artist, uh, that artist isn't even in the room, but you see something that, that artist did and you respect it, your esteem for that person goes up, doesn't it? Wow, I, I like that songwriter. I like his stuff or her stuff. And it kind of goes up. And I think what we've done is we've driven a wedge between God, who he is as uh, a person, as spirit, as an individual, whatever, and the things that God gets the credit for, the things that he's done, the things that he's made, the things that were his ideas, his creativity, and we've driven a wedge, and so we don't know how to really go to God because we're not taking into account all the things that are God's or a part of God or an extension of God. So here's the analogy. Uh, I went to Disneyland just a couple weeks ago, but you go into Disneyland, and it's a great place, and they want to take a survey of you right when you get in the door and, and then they, you know, at most theme parks they take a picture of your group and then they try and sell it to you on the way out and right there there's usually seats and sitting areas and you haven't even really gotten to the park yet. Now life is good. God made it and I don't mean to devalue the fact that there's 
a war going on in the Middle East, that there's health issues, that there's difficult relationships, that there's other tough things in life. But there are also things like beauty and music and relationships and love and laughter. And these things are still a part of this world and life is good and there's so much that God has created and designed and given us to enjoy. And the way I liken it is God has given us an opportunity to go to an amusement park. And our life is like a day at an amusement park. And they can say it's the happiest place on earth. We know it's not. You just look at all the crying babies on the way out. Um, so yeah, it's not perfect, but it's still an amusement park. And I think we get this sense that we have to walk in, sit down at the bench. God gave us the free tickets, the free passes, paid our way there. And if, and if we're really going to honor him, we're going to take a seat at that first bench and spend the next 12 hours talking about God. God's so great. Isn't he a great God? I so appreciate that he gave us this opportunity to come here. Isn't it wonderful? Let's go around and everybody can just say what. But you sit on that bench for the next 8 hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, and then the day's up, it's time to go, and you walk out and think, wasn't that wonderful that God gave us those tickets to go to Disneyland? If you gave someone tickets to Disneyland, if you gave someone an iPod for Christmas, what brings you the most pleasure? Seeing them use it, right? That they value, that they're so excited about that iPod, they're taking it everywhere. And they treat it like a baby. It's like, I don't want to scratch on it, you know? Um, if you give someone a, a trip to Disneyland, what do you want to hear when they, they come back? You don't want to hear... Uh, we went and sat on a bench, and we all talked about you, Ken, and shared our favorite stories, and we wrote you a thank you note, and we, uh, I want to hear that you went on Space Mountain, Thunder Mountain, Splash Mountain. She got your picture taken with Mickey. I want to know that you valued my gift to you by enjoying it. That's what brings me pleasure. Does that make sense? God has given us this life. And he wants us to give him the credit. He is worthy of the credit. He wants us to give him the thanks. He wants us to appreciate him. He wants us to praise him. Wow, God, amazing stuff here. He wants us to praise him. He's given us this life, and one of the best ways we can praise him and give thanks and honor him is by making the most of the life he's given us. Getting out in nature and floating a river going to Latvia and building some buildings, listening to a bird sing and instead of walking by, stopping and letting it affect you and then saying, God did that. I can brag on God for that. Instead of just praying vague prayers, God, I got a bunch of stuff, help me out with some of it, realize he is God. He made us and he can answer prayer and if you thought that Santa Claus really existed, guess what? I know this for a fact. You wouldn't just say, bring me something, Santa. You would give him specifics. With that Mustang, I want the gray leather, and I want the rag top. And I want... If you believe Santa exists, you're going to be specific. If you believe God answers prayer, you're going to be specific. God, I need help, and I need it with this specific thing. And if God answers a specific request, guess what? You can go, wow, 
I know that God answered this prayer. If you never pray with specific requests, guess what happens? You never really know that God's moving in your life. So listening to a bird, going to God in a serious way, you really do exist, and you want to help out. You want to answer prayer. I'm going to take that serious and give specifics. On a sunny day, praise God for the sun. When you see the stars, marvel at the stars. And at the end of the day, be able to go back to God and say, I rode all the roller coasters. I was on Space Mountain three times. Uh, when it came to only an hour left in the day, I didn't just fold it in. Uh, I, I, I picked up the pace. And got in a couple extra rides, you know, before the park closed kind of a thing. And God, you get all the credit for that. You made that possible. And we worship God with gladness, with appreciation, with joy, with thanksgiving in our hearts. We give him the credit because what he has given us is worth credit. It's good. It's good. And so we don't have to view God as this abstract thing, how do I get close? We look at his household, we look at his creation, we look at all of it and we marvel. And we draw closer to God in the process. When we come to worship God, we don't do it out of duty. We realize, you know what, there's nowhere I'd rather be, there's no one I'd rather be with. It's like giving roses to your wife. This brings me joy, God. And Piper gave me that paradigm shift, and it made all the difference in my life that I don't just worship God and then go and try and take, take care of my gladness on my own. Like somehow happiness is, is mine to figure out. God's not going to help me with it. And worship's over here. My happiness is over here. I can worship God through my happiness, through my joy, through my affection. And thanks to Rod Morris uh, in a strange answer to prayer, um, we've got a copy of, like, remember I said there's the larger catechism and then there's the smaller catechism? The book Desiring God is like 300 pages, so that's the larger catechism. And this is like Desiring God for Dummies. It's, it's the smaller catechism of Piper. Uh, it's called The Dangerous Duty of Delight. And this little book, quick little book, will give you the scriptures and the quotes and package it together better than I ever could. And we can give you guys one of these to each household on your way out. Uh, and I hope you just take it, maybe flip through it, maybe mark a passage or two. But think about it. Think about it. We get to worship God with our joy. There's no wedge between our own happiness and God. And the phrase that Piper uses, and I'll close with this, is this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us. He gets the most credit. We esteem him the most. He's pleased the most when we are most satisfied, finding our joy the most, um, most satisfied in him. Let's pray. Father God, I would just come to you humbly this morning and ask that you would somehow show us that you are bigger than we realize, that the boxes that we put you in are too small, 
that you're beyond, you're higher, you're bigger, you're larger. And that we can marvel at that. And that you're doing more things and you've done more things than we give you credit for. And if we would just open our eyes and look a little harder, we would see all these wonderful things. Every good gift comes from you. We would see all the things that you are giving, that you're doing. And Father, it would cause our hearts to fall more in love with you, to want to give you more glory and to praise you more. I pray that for your glory, and I also pray that for our happiness. Because the more we can see of you, the more you'll be glorified and the happier we'll be. So Father, I just pray for our hearts. Do a work at the core of who we are. Because we know if our hearts change or if our hearts are affected, the rest of us will change as well. For your name and for your glory. So pick one of these up on the way out. God bless you.